0: This is episode number five of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, a podcast for engaged citizens and public leaders who want to lead change through politics with their integrity intact. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. I was going to ask you to explain quantum computing, but... Very simply, normal computers work uh, by... Uh... Come on now, don't... Don't interrupt me. When you walk out of here, you will know more— no, some of you will know far less about quantum computing, but most of you— Normal computers work uh, either there's power going through a wire or not. It's one or a zero. They're binary systems. Uh, What quantum states allow for is much more complex information to be encoded into a single bit regular computer bit is either a one or a zero, on or off. A quantum state can be much more complex than that because, as we know, uh, things can be both particle and wave at the same times, and the uncertainty around quantum uh, states uh, allows us to encode more information into a much uh, smaller computer. So uh, that's what's exciting about quantum computing, and that's what we're going to do. If you don't follow Canadian politics the same way that today's guest on the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast does, you might be forgiven for assuming that since the election Justin Trudeau, decision making in Canada's federal government is informed by the best possible evidence. After all, he sounded pretty good in that clip which went viral shortly after it was recorded at a press conference in April of 2016 where Trudeau was standing side by side with theoretical physicists announcing, You know, it's not actually that easy to find out what he was announcing that day. I flipped through several news stories on the topic, and you've got to dig pretty deep to find out what the government was actually doing about theoretical physics that day, aside from trying to explain it. Regardless of how science friendly a government is, politicians have their own interests, and sometimes it takes a push in order for them to act. Enter today's guest Dr. Katie Gibbs, a scientist and one of the founders of the national nonprofit Evidence for Democracy, a group dedicated to the transparent use of evidence in government decision making in Canada. Evidence for Democracy, or E4D as they call themselves, was a movement launched in 2012, during the time when Stephen Harper was Canada's Prime Minister, the head of a government that was well-known for ignoring evidence, muzzling government scientists and burying their research. When we
1: first started, it was very much an outside game and pretty much only an outside game because the the doors were shut. And so now it is a very different type of work, especially recently. We've been doing a lot more of that inside game you know, it's often less public and the doors are open. And so now we're we're, we're learning and figuring out how to sort of play that game.
0: On today's episode, we'll talk with Katie Gibbs about the outside game and inside game of advocacy, why it can be tougher but better to be playing the inside game, some of the challenges in her work, and whether evidence and democracy can be compatible.
1: like a lot of kids, I really loved animals and endangered species. And so I very much like went into science because I wanted to save all the endangered species, Uh, very lofty goal. And so I think it was, you know, a little bit different than why a lot of people go into science. Like I, I loved science and was passionate about it, but I was always interested in science as a, Vehicle for informing policies and making good decisions. And, you know, I guess when I started my thesis, when I started my PhD, I, I thought that that was actually kind of how it worked. You know, I thought that the scientists um, asked questions and produced results and answered questions. And then the policymakers, you know, used that information and made decisions accordingly. And. <laughs> Pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty naive, right? And I pretty quickly uh, realized that that's not at all what actually happened, and that you know, really most most of the science was never seen, much less used by anyone, much less policymakers. And hmm. so I, I think you know, pretty early on, I I got interested in that question of so if policymakers aren't making decisions based on the science. What are they making decisions based off? And I got really interested in those questions of how do you influence decision makers, which ultimately comes back to how do you influence the public? And so I, you know, did a lot of volunteering on mostly sort of environmental type campaigns. And I did a lot of political work in my Spare time while I was working on my thesis. Right. So mostly, mostly with the Green Party, and like I ran the the National Youth Wing for the Green Party for a number of years. I worked on a few of Elizabeth May's campaigns, and um, so it was kind of like I was doing both for a number of years. Right. Yeah. Um, and was kind of throughout those years, kind of trying to figure out, you know okay, what am I going to do with my life? Like, am I going to keep doing the science and stay more on the science path? Or am I going to really, you know, jump ship and do campaigning work? And so um, so it's actually what I'm doing now at Evidence for Democracy makes a lot of sense because right. I, I've actually been able to make this job where I got to do both of those things. Like I actually get to work in the science realm but while doing the campaigning and outreach type work that I love so mm. it's it's actually been like this perfect um you know melding of of all of my interests and passions
0: and, and what kind of scientist like when you did your phd what was it specifically that you you focused on
1: so it was sort of um, macro conservation ecology, if that makes any sense. So I was in in the biology department, um, but looking at broad scale trends and patterns across lots of species. So, you know, really the work itself was more like applied statistics.
0: Right. I can see how that would also become political fairly quickly once you start looking at what you do about it
1: yeah so you know a lot of you know i wasn't really like out in the field actually you know taking measurements of animals or anything it was mostly you know Mm. looking at really big data sets crunching numbers and um it was very policy oriented the main chunk of my thesis i was looking at assessing the endangered species act in the u.s And trying to look at sort of which policy levers under it had actually resulted in an improved status for species and which Mm. hadn't. So it's kind of funny because, you know, I didn't really think of myself as someone who was all that interested in policy when I started, but... Looking back, I mean, that that's clearly the thesis question of a policy wonk, not a biologist.
0: Right. And you said something earlier uh, that I wanted to go back to about um, you very quickly realized that that sort of notion that like scientists put the evidence together and policymakers, you know, put decisions together together based or make policies and programs based on that evidence uh, and that quickly learned that it w- wasn't how it worked uh, do you have a sense of how it does work or do you have like a working I guess assumption for for what is the the main driver of decisions that affect the the kind of issues that you guys are working on?
1: well not not really I mean it it varies a lot and I think often you know sometimes it can be malicious in the sense of, you know, governments purposefully, you know, trying to ignore or subvert evidence or science. But I think often it it wasn't malicious and it is just a uh, a lack of knowledge and a lack of of time and a lack of access. You know, even when I think of most of the people that I now know who work in policy shops in government, You know, they don't even usually have access to the primary scientific literature, nor Mm. do they have the time to be searching through all of the scientific papers that come out every day. You know, there's just so much information out there that it's just really not something that they're able to do to to sort through it all.
0: So, how does what evidence for democracy does influence that or I guess what what gap are you trying to fill in that in that space?
1: It's a good question. and i and I think it's changed it's already changed quite a bit over time, even over our short existence. So I think, you know, when we first started, our focus was really on creating the political demand for evidence-based decision making. And mm. I sort of see that as like the first step is, you know, First, you have to have governments that actually want to use evidence. And then, but that's not enough on its own. Even once you have that, then there's still a whole bunch of other, you know, some of these other problems that I've kind of touched on of how to actually make it happen is a lot harder than mm-hmm. you might think it is. And so, but certainly, you know, when we first started in, in about 2012, 2013, under the Harper, Harper government we were very much focused on that step one create the the political demand for evidence based decision making and so you know that was very much um that very much involved getting the public media and science community to be talking about these issues and particularly getting scientists to be outspoken advocates for the role of science in government decision-making mm. and um, you know, we were quite successful in getting that um, on certainly on the media's radar and on the political agenda around the last election. And so, you know, we've had a new government since 2015 and now in the, for the last little bit, our work has shifted more to those questions of how do you actually make it happen and that's that's actually you know probably a lot harder question it's Mm -hmm. a bit more fun and and juicy and we do you know sort of more work now like working with government and working with the science community and and trying to actually figure out how to sort of make those bridges
0: and be curious to know a bit about sort of like the the change in tact you've had to make between the transitions from the two from the old Harper government and the new uh, Trudeau mm-hmm. government because my sense was and kind of observing some of your work and just generally paying attention to politics is that there simply wasn't the appetite under the Harper government for evidence in uh policy areas that they'd already had you know an ideological position on um and my correct me if I'm wrong my sense is that the the campaign would have been to kind of replace them uh whereas now uh you know there's uh a parliamentary science officer or chief science officer
1: uh chief science advisor
0: chief science advisor so it just seems like the the policies at least on the surface of the Trudeau government are a lot more um Kind of supportive of the broad goals you're asking so uh, yeah i'd be curious if you could just talk a bit about sort of like what the approach to um what your sort of goals were was it to replace the government at that time or was it more fingers crossed that one that um was more pro-science would get in
1: i mean it, it absolutely is our our view that science can't be a partisan issue and it can't be a one-party issue um so you know it's not like we were explicitly trying to get the conservatives out of government but we were trying to have a government that we could work with and the reality Mm. was that under the harper conservatives you know the door was very much closed there was no you know there was no working with them on any of these issues and Mm. um so the work then you know, often when you're talking about campaigning, you distinguish between sort of that outside game versus an inside game. You know, the right. outside game is sort of like mostly targeting the media and causing a stink, and the inside <laughs> game is, you know, working with decision makers and trying to find solutions and get things done. Hmm. I mean, that's a very, um, you know, that's a very rough overview there's a lot more to both of those but Mm. um when we first started it was very much an outside game and and pretty much only an outside game because the doors the doors were shut so the work was around really mobilizing scientists and the public and elevating this issue in in the media and in the public um and we certainly tried to work with government and right. put in meeting requests and never got very far um so we did do some work at the time of you know trying to approach the other parties and so you know even that it wasn't just by chance that we got another party that does at least on the surface care about science and evidence you know we did a lot of work targeting the opposition parties while Harper was in government, hmm. you know, really trying to sell them that this was an issue that they could take up. Hmm. And you know that was part of, you know, once you've sort of created enough of a of a buzz in the media and gotten enough, you know shown that you have sort of enough public support on your side, then we were able to get these meetings with the liberals and the NDP and the Greens and say, you know, look, this is, this is a big issue. The public cares about it. Scientists care about it and are going to be vocal about it going into the next election. You know, you can use this. You can come out right with some strong science policies and strong support for evidence-based decision-making. And, you know, even that issue of, of bringing back a chief science advisor, you know, that was something that we explicitly took in meetings with the opposition parties before the election and, you know, tried to sell them that this was something they should include in their platform and that we would cheerlead them when they did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were really happy to see so much that there was so much support and so much uptake for that. Um, And so, you know, we did see really all of the opposition parties include aspects of you know support for evidence-based decision making unmusling government scientists bringing back a chief science advisor position you know really they all included this in their election platforms which was really great to see um and so now you know it, it is a very different um uh different type of work especially recently um we've been doing a lot more of that inside game that is you know, it's often less public and the doors are open. And so now we're, we're, we're learning and figuring out how to sort of play that game. And, you know, we recently did a lot of government relations work around um, trying to save this high Arctic research station called Pearl. And, you know, this was our, our first time doing like really detailed lobbying. And it involved meeting with you know political staff in um the science minister's office in the environment minister's office in the PMO mm. also meeting with staff in the bureaucratic levels of the different departments and so there there really is a lot to it it's it's complicated and it really kind of is a is almost like a game of you know trying to figure out all these different relationships and interpret what all these different um you know different people are saying from different levels and trying to figure out what it all actually means versus what they're saying and and how to use that information and so um it was it was really interesting you know we definitely learned a lot and it was you know it's a very just a, you know completely different work than the kind of work we were doing a few years ago right
0: the outside game stuff
1: mm-hmm. and you know right now we're also trying to it's you can't you also can't really you can't just totally stop the outside work. And so, you know, I think part of what we struggled with at first was not really knowing how to balance that inside game and outside game. And that's something that we're we're getting a better hang of now.
0: Yeah, I know the talking to other groups that were um, maybe not necessarily explicitly um anti anti-Harper or anti-conservative but you know when you look at their policies and look at what they were advocating for um nothing really aligned they found that you know when the new government came in there was sort of like a drop in in public support and a drop in donor support in some cases uh because people had this sort of um Probably a false presumption that like now that you know the the government we didn't want is gone they're like there's no problem anymore and uh, but I think what the people who are actually kind of on the ground like you doing the work are realizing is that like yeah it's it, we still need the still need the support still need you know to be there it's just the like you said I love the language of outside game versus inside game because it really does shift to that because they've got their own priorities too
1: yeah and you know especially um when you're When your donors are the public, like it's harder to, it's harder to write that really like captivating fundraising email Hmm. talking about your inside game. You know, this is something we've kind of struggled with over the past few months of like, you know, you have like a dozen meetings in a week and, you know, and get the sense that you really are like, elevating your issue to high levels in the PMO, which is, you know, what any campaigner wants, right. which is great. But then you're like, how do I write a fundraising email about this? You know, you, you can't really. And so it absolutely is. It's harder to fundraise off of. And, and I feel like it's, certainly as an executive director, I found that to be a frust- a frustrating dynamic mm. in that, you know, under the Harper years, there was such a clear sort of boogeyman, you know, such a clear villain in the story mm-hmm. that it made a really compelling narrative to get people to donate. But really our capacity to make change was, was quite limited because all the doors were closed. Right. Whereas now with a more friendly government, you know, now is really when we need people to come on side and, not just give us money but also engage in our campaigns and work with us because now it's like the doors are open yeah that's a really good point the the positive change we can make is almost limitless um now is really when that hard work happens of making concrete positive change and so it's actually uh, i think a far more exciting time you know but it is harder to sell because it it doesn't necessarily make for as compelling of a story.
0: Yeah, I could see it being challenging to kind of put a fundraising email out there if it happens to be, you know, the the weekend that Justin Trudeau went viral explaining quantum computing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, we've really been trying to make that case like like how I've just sort of put it that you know yeah, the, you know, the sort of like villain of our story is gone, but now is when we have this amazing opportunity to make positive change. And, you know, I think um, certainly for our cause, um, and I think I'm sure this also affects other NGOs working in Canada that, you know, I think Trump being elected in the US was a really good um, reminder here that we can't take any progress that we currently have for granted, and mm-hmm. you know, we've certainly used that as a, you know, as a warning of why we have to do everything we can now to make sure that we are we're not just saying oh, okay they're good they like science they've got it but we right. have to actually go further and make sure that we're making the kind of very specific concrete changes that will be hard for any potential future governments to undo.
0: Mhm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Are there other challenges that you've run into along the way that have been either I guess things you're currently grappling with or, or things that you might have learned from along the way that could be uh, helpful for some of our listeners?
1: I mean, there's so many. I you know, I think I think part of the biggest challenge is just like constantly persevering. I mean, it (laughs) certainly running a small NGO is not, it's not easy. And I think it can often always feel like there are, you know, every day there's more challenges, both like challenges on an organizational level of, you know, usually funding and just not having Mm -hmm. enough resources. And then also the challenges in the in the space of you know you look at all of the all of the problems and you want to fix them all and you have such such tiny resources that it seems impossible and i think you know i think just having to sort of like get up every day and deal with that that big challenge is Mm. is you know makes this a hard you know, a hard profession, a hard career to be in. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly that I just, I don't know, I don't have any answers. It's it's not easy. And I think, you know, I I talk a lot with other NGO, uh, like executive directors, especially of, you know, fairly small NGOs. And it is a, it is a hard job. And I think it's okay for us to, to say that. And Hmm. talk about it and pat ourselves on the back for continuing to do it day in and day out.
0: Yeah. No, I, uh, as a executive director of a uh, small NGO as well, I totally hear that. I find it helpful to look at NGOs that I know are of, of similar size that are doing less and use that as sort of inspiration and motivation to keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I think part of the big challenge is really the the sustainability of it you know, I think it's quite hard, especially for small NGOs, you know, I think for all of us, it's almost always like you're taking it a year at a time at best. And that, I think that aspect of uncertainty, um, both, both for the organization itself, but also for us as individuals who, you know, that also means that like our career prospects are Year by year, practically, that, you know, that that sense of sort of um, uncertainty and instability um, can be quite challenging. And it's, you know, it's certainly something that you just kind of have to accept and get um, and get more comfortable with if if you're going to stay in this in this realm.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in either direction. Like if you're comfortable with it, then things get easier. If you're uncomfortable with it, things get harder. I saw an article, I think it was in uh, Policy Options uh, magazine this year, talking about one of uh, the challenges that a lot of, I think it was focused on young faculty at universities. Um, And they were talking about um, how risky it can be as a career move uh, to be too involved in... um, in community work and specifically they talked about like uh doing work that would get their research uh whether it was social science or science uh, out in uh, kind of mainstream publications like you know magazines right. or op-ed uh, sections of newspapers and i'm curious if mm-hmm. that when you guys were uh, initially um trying to kind of mobilize scientists uh to to take action if that was um, a, a challenge you faced in in getting sort of even just getting scientists and and people who do research for a living to speak up.
1: It absolutely was, and and still sort of continues to be an issue. I mean, this is something that is hotly debated within the scientific world, and you know, even going back to my grad school experience, we so we our labs had like a, a journal club where we would pick a, a scientific article once a week and everyone would discuss it and you know quite a few times we would end up picking these pieces that were sort of commentary pieces on you know whether or not scientists could or should be advocates and so Mm. this is certainly not a new not a new thing being discussed in the science community and you know i i do think I mean, for one, personally, my personal view is that that idea is ridiculous, you know, I think, (laughs) Um, you know, and one of, I remember being at a scientific conference and a very, uh, a very famous um, biologist, um, Stuart Pym, you know, said that he, how he interpreted his job as a professor was not just, he didn't interpret it as limited to teaching undergraduate students. He interpreted his job as a teacher, and the part of his his role as a scientist and being a teacher was to teach the public in mm. in the broadest sense. And, you know, that's very much how I interpret the job of a scientist. You know, almost almost all of the scientists in 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 Canada and around the world, the vast majority of them are publicly funded, they're funded by taxpayers. And so, you know, I think they, you know, not only should they be, you know, encouraged to communicate more broadly, I think it should actually be a requirement, it should be required and expected as, you know, part of, of being paid by the taxpayers is being expected to communicate your work back in those public channels and not just communicating your research in very limited ways to other academics. So, you know, I, I have never, you know, really understood that argument. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that argument also sort of stems from this idea that scientists somehow have to remain like impartial and unbiased. And I think that's also flawed logic. You know, scientists are People, they're humans, they have biases, all humans do. And science itself, um, you know, is supposed to be a method of producing unbiased information. And it's not perfect. It's just sort Mm. of, you know, like democracy, it's just the best system we have for producing unbiased information. But the the reason it works is not because scientists themselves need to be unbiased. It works because of the scientific method and peer review is supposed to, you know, be able to counteract any potential bias in the individual and produce this information as a result. And so, you know, I, I, I just, I also disagree with that whole sense of, of scientists themselves, somehow needing to remain, you know, impartial, impartial, and and sort of removing Mm. themselves from discussions. Um, so so that said, these arguments still do um, still do happen, and but you know, I find I do find that that the sentiment is changing a lot with younger scientists, and you know, I think of a, especially during the Harper years, there was a lot of fear within the science community. That you mm-hmm. know, it was it was actually a bit frustrating at the time because it was more younger scientists who were speaking out and a lot of the you know tenured um well established professors who um you know you'd think were in a position to speak out they often weren't and they were the ones hmm. who were more fearful um and yet you know I think I look at Diane O'Rahill who she really led the campaign to save the experimental lakes area um did she just did like an absolutely tremendous job and basically like put her um thesis on hold and became a full time campaigner to save
2: the ELA mm, wow.
1: and and was successful um so you know i i there really were a lot of younger researchers, especially who you know, maybe they did have that fear. And, you know, certainly, when I think back to some of my conversations with some of them, that fear was there, but they were willing to speak out anyway. And, you know, I think now, especially we're, you know, in 2017, we're almost five years past that, you know, seminal sort of death of evidence rally, where scientists really got outspoken. And Mm. you know what, so many of the scientists who were outspoken, they have either continued or gone on to have very successful traditional science careers.
2: Hmm. And
1: so, you know, I almost look at that as an experiment of, right. you know, okay, scientists did speak out. And what happened? Did they lose their credibility? No. Did they <laughs> go on to be successful scientists? Yes. So, you know, I think those, those results are in. And- you know, scientists can engage and speak out when necessary and still be very credible scientists.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, a career path that I don't know enough about personally to, to fully understand if those, you know, how prevalent those attitudes are, but uh, it's good to know that people who are speaking out are still doing good science or are still able to be employed doing good science. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, uh, so this is a question uh, that I wrestle with a lot. Um, Uh, I guess there's nothing inherent about democracy that's like, there's nothing about it that demands evidence necessarily, or at least this is my assumption. I'd love to hear your take on it. And there's nothing, I mean, even just looking at the United States, there's there's nothing that prevents uh, folks who are, um, you know, completely uh, not interested in uh, in the truth, uh, let alone, you know, detailed evidence and uh, studies and, and more complex forms of information from, from running and winning in elections. If you look at most societies, we measure them on the basis of are they democratic, do they promote the free exchange of information, and do they make decisions based on those things? Um, and I'm just kind of curious if if you've given thought to that. That sort of like, especially with you know being in. I hate, I don't really like the term post truth era because I just feel like it's yeah. become a buzzword. But it it does seem like uh-huh. there's some trends that would suggest that people who are good at collecting information and people who are good at kind of putting it out there, um, kind of like you said, is one of your learnings early on. It's like, it may not be as powerful as we think it is. And I think in many ways, your organization is yeah, addressing that by, you know, doing a lot of the hard work to push evidence in front of the people who are making decisions. But I'm just curious if, if that's a kind of a dilemma that, that you wrestle with as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good question. And it's almost sort of like, you know, you're asking, is there evidence for democracy, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of funny. And I mean, I think, you know, for me, where there really is that link to democracy is around the the transparency of hmm. our, our governments clearly communicating to the public what decisions they're making and what information went into that decision hmm. and i think that's that's really where the the evidence based decision making comes in and i mean i i don't think i don't think there's a lot of people who let's see how to say this even the people who are who are consuming the fake news and their their, their decisions are being informed by, by fake news they don't they don't know that it's fake news. Hmm. Right? Like even so even those sort of people that we're thinking of it's not that like if you ask them they would probably think that they're supporting evidence-based decision making. Right. Right? It's they don't know that it's fake news. They they believe it to be truth.
0: Hmm. And
1: so I think I think that's the bigger that's the bigger issue for me is how do we get to a point where the public and individuals are in a position to be able to assess the information that is being dumped on them on a daily you know, basis and be mm. able to determine what is reality. And, I mean, I think that is directly linked to that question of democracy. You know, it, it could still be democratic for a government to um, make decisions that aren't based on evidence. But it's all about how they're communicating that. Like, I don't think you would see a government that says, okay, the evidence says this, but we are ignoring it and going to do this instead. Right. Right? That's not what they do. Instead they try to hide the evidence that shows they should be doing A. And in the worst cases, they might actually try to make up or massage the evidence to say that to make it look like it supports their decision to do B. Hmm. Right? And often we in in sort of our little bubble, we call that decision based evidence making. which is kind of the running joke that that's kind of what we usually have instead of evidence-based decision-making. And so that's really where the concerns around democracy come in is, is in that kind of manipulation of information, whether it is actually, you know, manipulating and altering things for political reasons, or if it is, you know, suppressing information that goes against what the government wants to do anyway. Hmm. So, you know, for me those are really where there is this sort of core intersection between between the evidence and democracy and and that's sort of why we why we have this kind of obscure organizational name that <laughs> seems to confuse people but I think really does capture the core of of what we're all about. Um yeah. I'm not yeah. Sure I mean, it's those answer your question, but
0: well, no, it's helpful. I mean, it's it's one that I uh, think of from time to time. And I think it, it comes from we have a course at Springtide uh, that a woman named Sarah Thompson comes in to teach from time to time called Deep Democracy. And one of the bases of it is that it's a leadership model and leadership framework that is not based on the presumption that the people you are trying to lead or influence will make rational decisions and will respond mm-hmm. to your actions and behaviors rationally. And I think um, mm-hmm. another way of saying that I've heard has been that sort of humans make decisions emotionally and then we justify them rationally to you know sell them to other people or to uh, convince other people, which sounds somewhat like uh, decision based evidence making. It's an it's a ongoing kind of question that I, I've been asking myself and uh, other people who I think might have a piece of the answer, like yourself. That, uh, yeah. of, you know, if that's present at the individual level, like just between me and, you know, whoever it is mm-hmm. that I have to justify the decisions in my life to, um, what learnings are there at the societal level for uh, how we go about sort of repairing democracy and, and the things that we see as wrong with it?
1: I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately as well is sort of like, I think in most, in most cases, there is sort of the overlaps between what I see is like sort of two, two separate movements happening right now. One is sort of like this, you know, deep democratization of government and how we make decisions and sort of this sense that if we utilize, you know, new digital tools, we could really put decision making sort of tangibly back in the hands of the public you know for that sort of Mm. very very deep democracy but then there's also this movement pushing for evidence-based decision making and sort of you know are we are our decisions being informed by experts and by evidence and i think most of the times those things are on the same page and and those movements are moving in the same direction but i think what is potentially really interesting is you know what do you do when those things contradict each other and you know i think of sort of one example is um you know there's been some municipalities that where uh the public has pushed back on the use of fluoride hmm. in in the water system you know sort of saying using very um um not science right. not evidence and using, you know, various sort of um uh I guess you could say alternative facts and, you know, using this sort of like uh fear mongering, um, to, you know, sort of scare people that, you know, this fluoride is, is poisoning them mm. and shouldn't be in our water. And they've been successful in some municipalities in getting um them to stop using fluoride in the water. Mm. And you know, the the science community and the dental community <laughs> are, you know, sort of shocked at this. And all the experts are sort of saying, what are you doing? There's so much clear evidence that, that fluoride is effective. So I think it's, in, I mean, that's just sort of one easy example. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, as we move into the future, it's going to be really interesting to see how those two sort of separate movements, you know, work together and and what happens when they um when they clash
0: it sounds like you 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 were kind of just like curious wait and see no no predictions
1: yeah i'm not i'm not pretending to have any to have any answers but i mean i think this is also why we feel that you know raising the bar of science literacy among the public is so important Mm. and having scientists communicate to the public is so important so that ideally you don't have, you know, i'm I'm hoping that that sort of avoids more potential conflicts between those those two movements.
0: Well, let's hope you're right. Katie Gibbs, thanks for making time for this conversation.
1: Yeah, it was great.
0: That was this week's episode of The Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Govern Yourself Accordingly is a podcast produced by Springtide. We're a Canadian charity committed to helping listeners everywhere lead change through politics with their integrity intact. You can find us at springtide.ngo. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin subscribe to the podcast. Search for Govern Yourself Accordingly wherever you listen to podcasts and you'll get an alert when we launch a new episode every Tuesday. If you're listening on a web browser, you can subscribe for email updates. If you scroll down in this post, you can get a message whenever a new show is released. Now that the holidays are over, we're back to releasing weekly episodes. There are a couple things you can do to help the show. A big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. If you only have a second, just make a star rating between one and five stars. If you got a whole minute, write a one-sentence review that tells us and others why you plan to keep listening. You can share this podcast on Facebook and you find an easy to share link at springtide.ngo GYA followed by the show number. In this case, that's episode five, so springtide.ngo slash GYA5. Better yet, if you thought of someone in your life during this conversation who might appreciate hearing this message, why not just send them that link directly? It's always nice to be thought of, so I'm sure they'll appreciate it.